Thank you, Laura, for that beautiful reading of Acts chapter 9. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the privilege of having your love letter that we call the Bible. Father, you have written it for us. And in Acts chapter 9, we see the marvelous conversion of a man who was persecuting followers of Christ, persecuting them, jailing them, and yet converted through the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel, converted to know Jesus. And that's our prayer this morning, Father, that as we are believers in this room, that we might hear the gospel again and be encouraged. And as those that are still seeking, like Saul was, who later became Paul, that those in this room that don't know Christ would understand who he is, would repent and accept him as Savior. We pray this in the name of Jesus, and God's men and women said, amen. Well, if you don't know me, my name is Marty Thompson, part of the pastoral team here at West Park, and it's certainly my privilege to share God's word with you today. And we'll be looking at Acts chapter 9 and also 1 Timothy later on. Uh, But I'd like to kind of start with what I would call an elephant in the room. And uh, the the title of my message today is God, Gospel-Shaped Living. Gospel-Shaped Living. Uh, But the elephant, and some might even say it's really a white elephant in the room, is the election just in a couple of days. And uh, I'd like to just share with you how gospel-shaped living can impact uh, this very season that we find ourselves in. So unless you've actually gotten rid of your TV in the last few months, or you just stopped wanting to listen overall, you know that we have an election just in two days. And according to media hype, and I quote, this is the most important election of our lifetime. Well, we've all heard that about every four years, we hear that same quote, but my guess is that we'll hear it in four more years. Uh, But I do admit, as I look at the election and the season around us, there is a little bit more drama than normal. And here's why, we have two candidates that seem to be both very unpopular. From the latest data, and you can only trust data for about 15 minutes, um, about 60% of people that were surveyed in a recent thing I read this week have a negative or unfavorable view of Hillary Clinton. And about 58% of people had a negative or unfavorable review or opinion of Donald Trump. And just to see how strong those opinions are of them, the source that I found said that 49% of people surveyed had a strongly unfavorable opinion of Hillary. And gosh, Donald wins by one point. 48 had a strongly unfavorable opinion of Donald Trump. So if this research is even close to being accurate, uh, we now find ourselves uh, seeking to vote for two people unpopular. Uh, and mostly unpopular since polling even began. The closest is Mitt Romney, had a 51% unfavorable rating when he ran, and Walter Mondale had that same percentage in way back in 1984. Aren't you excited we're setting new records today? Well, in an article called Reflection of a King, a man by the name of Chuck Hooten uh, wrote these words in October of this uh, last month, October 17th. On the outside looking in, it's an absurd thought that out of the hundreds and hundreds of qualified people in our country, we are days away from throwing the keys to one of the two most unqualified for the job. His opinion. 
But if one looks deeper, it actually makes much more sense. These two are a reflection of who we have become as a nation. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are a reflecting pool into the state of our nation's soul. Leaders do not define morality of a people. They are simply a reflection of it. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are not the problem. They are a wake-up call for you and me. We see in them ourselves, we see in them a call to repentance and prayer for our nation. A new president cannot save us. Jesus can. Jesus was not a reflection of the people. Jesus is a reflection of the Father. So I wasn't really planning on talking about the election. And Sam's going to wonder, when in the world are you going to get to the message I ask you to preach on? In a minute, in a minute. I'm supposed to talk about global and local mission. But because I titled this Gospel-Shaped Living, that permeates everything that we're about today, tomorrow, in the future. And the more I thought about it, the more I believe the circumstances of this election fits in the context of the message and in the context of doing ministry here and abroad. But because it is election season, I wanted to share with you just a few thoughts, reminders for you and me in this season of time. The first reminder is that we as Christians, we exist to glorify God. We point people through our lives to a new life in Christ, and we help them follow Jesus as a way of life. A second reminder for you and me is is this election should not cause us to worry about our future, but to be excited about opportunities that God will give you and me to share Christ no matter what is going on, no matter who is elected, to live our lives centered truly on the gospel of Jesus Christ. A guy by the name of Kerry Neewolf is a Canadian. He just loves America. He studies America. And in a blog post on October 24th, he wrote five predictions that he believes could happen following the election. Number one, he believes that there'll be a renewed interest in God. Although we can feel like matters in our country are out of hand and nobody really cares. How many have actually received a call of your opinion? All of you, wow, that's a lot of people, maybe two right up here. We believe because nobody asks us that matters are out of our hands, out of our control, and nobody really cares what we think or do, but we know as followers of Christ, we can trust that world affairs are never taken out of God's hands, amen? The second, the church has the ability to look to Christ more and to the state less. The gap between what you and I believe and what your political party endorses is increasing every day. Number three, the tone of public discourse will either get worse or better. (laughs) I decided to Google the presidential debate of 1988. I compared George Bush and Michael Dukakis' debate to today. And they were friendly. They smiled at one another. They were polite and respectful. The difference between then and now is dramatic. But there's always opportunity for grace and hope. Number four, the work of the local church will be more important than ever. Some of our greatest opportunities 
exist in times of need and crisis. Throughout the world, we are hearing about people coming to know Christ. Throughout the world, in crisis and persecution, like we've never seen before, people are coming to know Jesus. Number five, living out our Christian values would become more important than ever. Living them out is better than legislating them. Laws tend to reflect only what the people believe. Change can only occur when enough people are living out their values biblically and hope and pray that eventually the laws catch up with that. So just remember this, only the church can be the voice and the work of God, not our government. So I focus on that because gospel-shaped living means going out and being the hands and feet of Jesus and representing him. And we do that in part by our voting. I would like to shift now from the importance of that context to the conversion of Saul, who later became Paul the Apostle, and how his experience on the road to Damascus helped shape our world. Acts 9 is a reminder for me that persecution has always been a part of the church. Right from the very beginning, Christianity was considered a threat. And it's a significant cause, by the way, of the growth of the early church. Without that persecution, the church would not have grown that quickly. I believe that those who persecute or condemn the church do so because they are afraid of Christianity. They are afraid of it this, for this reason. They don't want people to take Christianity seriously. In a message by John Piper, he says that, uh, in re- referencing a guy named Richard Newhouse who's gone home to be with the Lord, he said, non-believers are nervous that an awful lot of people throughout the world are Christians. And they fear that Christianity will be taken too seriously. So with that in mind, another way for you and I to look at the marginalization the criticism, the persecution, the making fun of Christianity, and you and I as Christ followers, is an indirect tribute to what God is doing through us. And it's an honor to be criticized or persecuted in this way for his sake. Otherwise, we would just be amongst all the other world religions, seen the same way as Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and so on. What sets us apart? Why did Saul, before his conversion, and thousands of others following him, including ISIS, persecute and continue to persecute the church, jail and kill Christians? Why do those who persecute see Christianity as a threat? And what does this have to do with you and I living lives that are shaped by the gospel? To answer these questions, I want to draw you back into Acts chapter 9. If you have a Bible that's been provided for you in the chair back in front of you, page 917. We're also going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1. That's found on page 991. Put your finger in there. I like to talk about the fact that Christianity is a converting religion. So if you're a Christian, what I'm about to say makes a lot of sense to you. You've heard it before. If you're not a Christian and you're sitting here wondering what this Christianity is all about, what I'm about to say forms the basis of why Christianity is threatening. But it's also why it is the hope of the world. 
Here it is. As followers of Christ, we believe that everybody has sinned against God and God's only son, Jesus, has come into the world to die in the place of all sinners. Anyone who repents and believes will be reconciled to God and have eternal life and those who don't perish. The gospel. Additionally, millions of Christians believe that the most loving thing that you and I can do uh, is to pray and to witness and to share what we believe with other people. To persuade them to think not the old way that they're thinking, but this new way and repent and accept Christ as their savior and followers of Christ. Right from the beginning, Christianity was seen by other people as a religion that converted other people. It made converts from all other religions because we believe there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. Acts 4.12. And this is why the Pharisees saw, later Paul, realized way early on that Christianity was a threat, not just to him, but to Judaism to his own religion, so he attacked it with great enthusiasm and support from other religious leaders. So as we look at Acts 9, it wasn't until that occurrence, the Damascus Road, that we see a change in Paul. So Paul's conversion is what I want you to look at, is it was for you and me personally, not just a historical fact, not just the beginning of, of the missionary to the Gentiles, Paul, but personally. God's design in converting Paul is to give you and I hope and for the people you and I want to see come to know Jesus. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 1.15. Keep in mind that we're going to be turning back to Acts. Here Paul says, I am the foremost of sinners, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience for an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So what is he saying here? Three things I'd like to draw out of that passage. First, God had you and me in mind when he saved Paul. Second, he saved Paul for you, for your sake so that you would see his overflowing grace, found in verse 14, just back up one verse, that you would see God's divine mercy, that you would see his long-suffering and patience. And here I'll pause just a moment and reflect back into the early 70s when I had very long hair. I was a hippie. I am still a hippie. Amen, says some out there. And in those days, I was dating my wife, Randa, and she was a believer. She did that naughty thing parents don't want you to do and date unbelievers. She was dating me, but she only took me places that I didn't really want to go. Where was that? That was church. That was uh, Campus Crusade for Life events. They were Christian concerts. And because I was dating this beautiful woman, I went everywhere she went. I heard the gospel a hundred times. I am so thankful that Jesus has perfect patience. Perfect patience. 
Third point, take courage and hope for your own salvation and the salvation of others. That's what we can pull out of 1 Timothy 1.15. We can take hope for our own salvation and the salvation of others. So let's go back to Acts 9. And let's look at Paul's conversion from this perspective that it was made for you and me. Luke in Acts 8.3 says, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women, and he committed them to prison. Then in Acts 9, 1 and 2, Luke says that Paul was not just threatening Christians, he was breathing threats. And I just look back on that, what that concept means is that his daily life, everything about him saw Christianity as such a significant threat that he was going to do something about it. The message of Jesus, salvation by faith apart from works, would turn Paul's religious achievements, and he knew this, into a pile of rubbish and be the end of all of his boasting. We pull that out of Philippians 3, 7, and 8, where Paul knew at the time he was, he was persecuting Christians that this was a threat to everything he knew and everything he believed. This is the kind of person, Paul or Saul in those days, that no one expected or perhaps even wanted to be converted. God wants us to see in his conversion that the most unlikely people can be converted, are converted, because God's mercy is not limited. God's mercy is unlimited. Look at my life and your own life. God saved us out of his mercy. He also is a great picture of God's divine sovereign grace. Remember who was in charge on the Damascus Road? It was Jesus. He was not responding to anything Paul had done to win his grace. Paul was right smack in the middle of doing what? Persecuting. He was on his way to Damascus, 100 miles away from Jerusalem, to persecute the church, to persecute Christians. He was responding because God is sovereign. That means he is free. He is free to do whatever he wishes. God is sovereign. Jesus chose Paul long before Paul chose Jesus. It says in Galatians 1.15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. What does that have to say about when God knows us? Jeremiah chapter one, Jeremiah, God knew Jeremiah before he was formed in his mother's womb. He chose Paul before he was born. The sanctity of life is spoken deep into those verses. Divine sovereign grace and for our sake, Paul's conversion was for you and me, it's personal. God chose Paul and he saved him by his sovereign grace. Once again, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. As we read it together, as you're looking at the words in your Bible, put your name in there, and I'll read it that way. I, Marty, am the foremost of sinners, but I, Marty, received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his, his perfect patience for an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's Paul speaking of his conversion, and it relates to you and me personally. It's an example of Jesus' patience and his long-suffering. 
If you're sitting in the room and you're still seeking Christ, you're still asking the questions, don't lose heart. For if you believe he can't save you, we know that he can. Christ follower, don't lose heart if you think you've stepped away from God too far. You're never, ever too far to receive his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness. Patient ones, you that are sitting in the room that have been praying for a loved one, a sibling, a parent, grandparent, your children, a close friend, don't give up. Continue to pray for the unexpected. Continue to pray God's sovereign grace and overflowing grace of Jesus. Continue in your own long suffering as Christ has done for us. So we've looked at our current circumstances and we've looked in, in, back in time to the conversion of Saul. So now let's take a third shift and look how gospel-shaped living impacts global and local ministry. Here we go, Sam. I'm actually getting to the point. <laughs> you might be wondering how it fits, but one of the things I'd like to share with you is that typically men, not all men, but typically men like to think in boxes. We have a box for almost anything in our mind. And sometimes you can just pull that box out and take a look at what's in it and work on it a little bit close it back up and put it in there. That's what usually gets us into trouble with our wives because we're intently looking at her box when she's talking to us. The second thing that can get us into trouble with our boxes is that I think all men have, if you haven't discovered it, have what's called a nothing box. This comes from uh, uh, Pastor Mark Gagnon who speaks about this in Laughing Your Way to a Better Marriage. And the greatest example of a nothing box is when you're sitting there with the remote in your hand and you're staring at the TV and you're just flicking from one thing to another, just kind of looking at it. And your wife says, what are you doing? Well, I'm watching TV. You were in your nothing box, the box that has nothing in it, and it feels really good. <laughs> but we love to categorize. That's my point with the boxes. We love to categorize things. And we categorize in the church, and this is not a negative, this is just normal. We categorize ministry into children, to student, adult ministry, young adult ministry, middle young adult ministry, middle school, high school seniors. We, we will categorize things in worship. We'll categorize things in global and local ministry. The list is long. And so when we take a look at the categories of local and global, when it comes to local, we think of everything that's occurring in the context of 8833 Middlebrook Brook Bike. Easy for me to say. We also call it our Cedar Brook community. We can even put a little pin right here and draw a circle around it and say, okay, this is local ministry for the most part. Then everything that's global, we tend to think of the global frontier and as things that are outside of that. And more than likely, even outside of the United States, that is global. Again, nothing wrong with those categories. But there can be tension living local and going global. Where do we give most of our attention to as church leaders? Where do we, we put our energies? Where do we put our resources? How do we share that together? But we, when we look at the Great Commission, the hugeness of the mission, because remember, we're on mission with Jesus to make disciples of all nations, 
We are co-missions with him. He is doing it. We're co-missioning with him. And when we look at the hugeness of it, but the simplicity reminds us there's one mission, not two. We're to go and make disciples. That's our mission. Whether it's local or global does not matter of the label. Matthew 28, 18 says, go therefore, as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And very recently, in the last few years, the global has become local. Many people are coming into Knoxville and other cities throughout America. I have a list of some. We have a Tuesday and a Thursday night ministry to men and women who want to learn English. We call it International Friends. And we borrowed something from Apple and we just decided to call it iFriends. And so we have today 114 men and women who come on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 35 different countries to learn English. We have 37 are men, 77 are women. Their children also come. We have ages from almost newborn through teens. The religions represented, we have two from Vietnam and Japan that are Buddhist. We have 23 who are Christians from Portugal, China, Colombia, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Indonesia, Moldova, Sudan, Taiwan, Ukraine, Uzbekistan, and Venezuela. 20 are Muslim from Bangladesh, Iran, Iraq, Jordan, Kosovo, Saudi Arabia, pa Palestine, and Morocco. One is a shaman from Mongolia. One is a Sikh from India. Amazing list. They come here every week to minister, to be ministered to, and to learn English. The church family, the world is here. It's not just over there. So taken from an article by David Mathis, he sees three reasons why global missions need local mission. It's not either or, each needs the other. First, global needs local for credibility. Missional fruit at home produces credibility for our global partners. Our missionaries that we support need to know that West Park's on point with the gospel. They need to know that. And they want to learn also from us of what we're doing. The second thing is resources. Local mission, right here at, in Cedarbrook, provides resources for global, both financial and people. Over the years, West Park have sent people that started right here as little boys and little girls, as couples, learning about the gospel, learning how to do discipleship, learning to be a disciple, being trained and equipped right here to go global. The third is training. Right here we train and help shape biblical theology. Principles of disciple making for men and women God may send to the world. Be that the world right outside our door or in a foreign country. Three reasons why global mission needs local. Three reasons why local ministry, local mission needs global. Authenticity is number one. When we see the work of God worldwide, we remember or learn that Jesus is not a tribal deity. 
He's just not the God of Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm sorry to tell you that. He is the God of every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. And that is authenticated every time we experience somebody that's serving globally. When we have our missions conferences, there's nothing more refreshing than to realize, even though they're far away, even though they may speaking, be speaking to us with a, an accent, that what they do when they go home is local mission. When we do what we do here, it's what? Local mission. So no matter where you are, what are we doing? We are local missionaries serving Christ. Number two, perspective. Missionary discoveries from crossing a culture will help us identify our own blind spots. I've had the privilege of visiting several of our missionaries as Rand and I have traveled the last few months. And one of the things we do is we bring back ideas because they do things exceedingly well. Oftentimes on their own because they don't have as many resources as we do. So we can learn from our missionaries. Third is confirmation. Our local ministry should aim at producing, sending out, and sustaining cross-cultural gospel carriers. People who are living their lives out that are gospel-shaped. It's a sign of maturity and health in the local body. When we think about refocusing West Park, this is an area that we can lean into as well. So in conclusion... After our conversion, after you came to know Jesus, Jesus calls us to live our lives shaped by his gospel. Paul reminds us of the simplicity of that gospel once again in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. He says, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all. Don't confuse the gospel with a political movement. It's not a culture war either. Our gospel paints a glorious picture of a future kingdom, a kingdom that's not of this world. My encouragement is to live a life of purity. Nothing can harm the gospel more than those who are, who are preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel to be exposed as impure and sinful men and women. We are but strive to live a life of purity. For if we are to be despised, it should not be about our sin. To be despised, it should be for righteousness' sake, and that alone. Let's follow the example of Jesus found in 1 Peter 2, 23. Who, when he was cursed, didn't curse back, when he suffered, didn't threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. Let's commit to live our lives shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, many of you are serving very effectively throughout the church. We've got men and women and, and boys and girls here that are serving in children's ministry, student ministry, adults, choir, worship, of all kinds, our growth group ministry, the list is very, very long, and we are incredibly thankful, and God is very pleased with your sacrificial service. 
I am not speaking to you. I'd like to speak to a few of you that may be looking for a way to live gospel-shaped lives in our local community. Right outside in the Welcome Center is a good friend of ours, Carol Waldo. She is the executive director of Knoxville International Networks. We call that Ken. And this ministry has a huge impact into the refugee and immigrant culture in the Knoxville area. She today needs eight encouragers on Tuesday and 10 on Thursdays to sit with ESL students, encouraging them, helping them to understand what the teacher is saying, being a friend, helping them with pronunciation. There are requirements. These are tough requirements. First, you need to love Jesus. Second, you need to love strangers because they're different from you and I. And third, it's really helpful that you speak English. (laughs) Not so with baby whisperers. We need baby whisperers on Tuesday and Thursday nights to come and hold and love on these babies while moms and dads are in their classes. Third is children's ministry. We have ages six through 12, and these young people have an opportunity to genuinely see Christ at work in us and to hear about Jesus, and most likely, you'll be the only Christian they know. They are precious souls that Jesus loves. And finally, another opportunity is friends speak. This is one-on-one tutoring using the Bible as text. What a special way of being able to read the Bible and helping people learn English. A second opportunity is with a ministry called Bridge Refugee. But before I forget, Carol will be out here after the service at a table in the Welcome Center. Also, right outside the Welcome Center is the Ministry Center, and there is some, a list of volunteer opportunities with Bridge Refugee Services that Ken partners with and, and has been around a long time. They help refugees who are just coming in to settle in, and they need a lot of volunteers to help, and they are really wanting the, the church community to be a part of that with them. Uh, one of our growth groups has actually signed up and volunteered to commit six months to a family to help them transition from their country to our country, from their language to our language, learning such basic things as what is a microwave. Very, very basic things. How do you settle into a community? How do you look at schools? How do you look at the future of taxation that they might know anything about? So first is Ken, second Bridge Refugee Services. Finally, Voice of the Martyrs. I have brochures that are out in that same area, out in the ministry center that look like this. Voice of the Martyrs is one of the ministries out there, uh, one of several, and this brochure uh, will give you 10 ways that you can pray for frontline workers. Men and women, couples and families that are serving in very dangerous countries. There's a map of the top 10. There's actually a map of more than that. And you can take a look at that. There's also an opportunity if you would choose to adopt a frontline worker financially. I'll let that, you and the Lord, just take a look at that and see if that'd be something you would like to do. But pastors must give you something to do before you step out, right? I mean, that's our job. Give you a tangible way of taking the message home with you. It's been a real privilege of just sharing what what God is doing uh, through the gospel in my life and in your life. And it's just an exciting journey that we're on. If you would be so kind as to stand with me, I'll give the benediction and then we can be dismissed.
There is one Lord, one faith, one mission. As you go, give hope to others, not fear. Go out into the world in peace and have courage. Hold fast to that which is good. Return no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, and help the suffering. Honor all people. Love and serve the Lord your God, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. You're dismissed.